When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It can be dangerously easy to steal your identity during tax season because so much sensitive info is all together. Before we start the annual meeting of Sean's personal info, uh, has anyone seen Social Security number? Not me. Nope. Nuh-uh. Oh, no. He's been stolen. LifeLock by Norton makes it easy to help protect yourself. If you become a victim, we'll work to fix it. No one can monitor all transactions, but you can save up to 25% off your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Identity theft protection starts here. Hello Bulls fans, welcome to Bulls HQ, a Chicago Bulls podcast on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Thank you for joining us. Today on the show, I was hopeful of talking about an impressive win against the Knicks, maintaining that unbeaten feeling and uh, honoring Joakim knowing on a night that the Bulls hopefully would have got a, a win against Tibbs, Rose and Taj, but alas, the biggest storyline surrounding the Bulls right now is injuries. Unfortunately, seemingly every season, the Bulls can't escape a notable injury or two to one of their key players, in particular their younger guys. This time, it's Patrick Williams, who launched for a dunk attempt that was challenged at the top by Knicks center Mitchell Robinson. Williams fell awkwardly, and this morning we've come to learn that it's a wrist injury that will likely keep him out for the entire season. And if that wasn't enough, Zach Levine is also carrying a thumb sprain into games, an issue that will linger for some time, as per reports. So we've got a lot to discuss. We'll get into a bit of a review of the Bulls game against the Knicks. Unfortunately, a loss there. Um, but we'll also preview Bulls, Jazz, and the road ahead as well. And here with me me to hit on all these topics is my friend Casey Scott. Casey, how are you, mate? I'm doing all right, considering, you know, (laughs) (laughs) the uh, last night definitely harshed my mellow. Um, It's devastating stuff. I mean, Patrick Williams, I don't know. It's, it's, what can you say aside from the fact that it's catastrophic for him, catastrophic for the team. And so having a hard time getting myself off the mat mood wise. Yeah. Look, I guess the part that surprised me was like he, he, he after the injury he came back in and he hit the free throws now maybe he could do that because it was on his left hand like he's guiding shooting hand so maybe from that point of view he's able to shoot the ball sort of thing but clearly thereafter he came out of the game didn't return we, we got the news that he wasn't going to return and the talk post game didn't make it seem like it was a significant injury at least like we, we knew that he was hurt he obviously had already had ankle issues and shoulder issues during the off season we knew about that the wrist was a compounding issue but I, I didn't get the sense that post game 
it was going to be something that was as problematic as what it's turned out to be, unfortunately. And, you know, Woj basically said he's potentially out for the season. I've seen reports that it's four to six months, and depending on the timeline, that can put him anywhere between February and April. And obviously, depending where the Bulls are and how they form in the playoffs, assuming they make the playoffs, then... Yeah, who, who, the, who the hell knows when he comes back, I suppose. But nonetheless, it's a long-term injury. But I guess the shock for me was that whilst it looked bad and whilst it looked, you know, I, I, I guess it wasn't necessary as well. We can talk about that. But it just just reading Patrick's face, the way he sort of had the injury, the way he came back, came back in and shot the free throws, like I mentioned, I, I wasn't expecting the severity of the injury. For me... Even once Patrick went went to the locker room and was no longer on the bench, my mind was not going to serious injury. And yeah. there there are probably a couple of things that go into that. One being that he's, um, you know, a young guy. The other that, you know, we knew it wasn't it wasn't one of the, the traditionally devastating injuries, right? Like mm. like a lower mm. extremity. And so, it, my the, the check marks that my my mind goes through is that once you eliminate you know, one of the knee ligaments and a foot injury and, you know, a high ankle sprain, everything else is, you know, livable. Yeah. So, so I, 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 I thought we were out of the woods and, you know, the, the wave of realization that hit me as I'm watching Twitter and I see that Casey Johnson tweets um, that Billy Donovan says that it's a significant injury. And then it was probably like two minutes later that the Woj bomb came out that he was likely out for the season. I mean, mm. I, do, I have not felt that kind of surprise since, you know, we got the news about Derek Rose's ACL. Now, granted, yeah. different degrees, obviously, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. just that kind of out of the blue, worst case scenario rug pull, it felt a little familiar, I have to say. Yeah, unfortunately. And as I mentioned at the top, it's just for whatever reason, it just, I have no idea why it is. Just this this team, not necessarily this roster, given it's a new roster, but this franchise, for whatever reason, just can't escape some sort of significant injury now. In this case, it's four to six months, potentially the season. In years past, we've seen Wendell Carter have, you know, missing half a season. Larry Markkinen's missed 20 odd games here and there. Obviously, when Zach came into Chicago, he was, he was recovering off an ACL and clearly you referenced the Rose injury, but even, you know, before him, it was, it was, it was Joe Keem Noah night last night uh, in Bulls Knicks and, you know, we, we saw Joe Keem fade away and in, with injuries as well. It just, for whatever reason, and I'll probably forget a few people to be honest with you, but just, it just seems like there's some sort of curse on this franchise where we can't just have a relatively healthy season where there isn't a storyline to a key piece that is missing for whatever reason and I guess that's the irony in all this because, you know, me processing it there after the news, I guess what I ultimately came away with was I don't know if this changes the baseline in terms of a win expectation for the Bulls in terms of maybe not necessarily wins, but in terms of how many games they lose. Like I feel without Pat, they're probably still on pace to win 42, 44 games, let's say. But what this does do is it maybe changes their trajectory in terms of their most or their highest ceiling, let's say, because we were all, yeah. we all thought maybe with you know if Pat just comes out and, and and gets to a level that maybe we we didn't foresee him in in his second season that that could maybe propel the Bulls from a six or seven type seed to a a three four five seed. I, I guess that's no longer a possibility now, given that he's potentially going to miss the the entire season. So that's kind of where it floored me in the sense that the best case scenario for this team has probably been evaporated for this season, whereas. 
maybe the uh, the medium outcome is, is still in play. So I, I guess that's the best news. And and look, Pat hasn't been playing very well to be to be frank, and and there's reasons for that. But yeah, I don't, I don't know if it changes the median outcome, but in terms of the, the the ultimate scope of this team, then that's where this injury news really does hit. That's where my head is at too. You know that mm. the best, the, the the highest ceiling outcome for this team is one where Pat figures it out in a month, in two months. You know he's doing all the things that you want out of a modern power forward. You know just living up to that vision of uh, you know the Pat Williams that we that we drafted, shooting, guarding multiple positions, a big fluid body out there who can read the floor and make smart plays, takes nothing off the table, puts a lot on it. I mean, he was a long, long way off from, from being that guy, you know, um, yeah, through yeah. the preseason and the first few games, but it wasn't impossible that he got there. And, and there's no doubt that we'd be a much, much better team if somehow he got to the top of that mountain. The, the thing that worries me a bit from a depth standpoint is I'm a lot less confident in Alizé Johnson as an option at power floor than I was even a few games ago. Like I, I think last night in particular was just like the nadir of yeah. my belief that he can, you know, capably do a lot of the things that you want, you know, a two-way big man. Well, let's, let's not even say two-way big man because two-way is probably too lofty an expectation for Alizé. A mm-hmm. good defensive big man, you know, he was really, really struggling to contain the dribble to my eye anyway. I mean, so much so that they went at him multiple times. And it's tough. Like you, you, He obviously isn't a rim protector. If he's not containing penetration, I mean, how good of a rebounder does he have to be then to justify playing the 20 minutes a game that we'd probably need him to play right now in Patrick's yeah. absence? So that, that that's where the depth issue starts to worry me, even short of you know, figuring out how much uh, the upside of a realized Patrick Williams means to this team. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess we can get into, you know, how the Bulls try to mitigate this. And I think that there are options for them to do so. And I think the, the primary option is, is Javante Green, who was starting in Pat's place during preseason. It, it seemingly makes sense for him to go back into the starting unit, given he's got some uh, like he's got some familiarity with the, with that starting unit, I guess. So I, w- I would assume he starts. But t- to your point, I had the exact same thought about Alizé Johnson. Um, the Knicks are freaking huge. So that, I mean, maybe that's, we're not going to face a team that big every single night. So maybe that's something to consider. Tony Bradley had some okay minutes as well. But like from a backup power forward point of view, I, I guess Dennis Jones uh, Derek Jones Jr. rather will, will come back in and come back into the, into the, into the rotation and, you know, he was seemingly out of the rotation, but he uh, he's going to be getting minutes now. Billy has been closing games with Caruso out there with Lonzo Demar and Levine on the perimeter. So I think he's that lineup with Vucevic is going to get a lot more minutes. But to your point around Alizé Johnson, like, it, like even going up against Taj Gibson last night, he looks small. And like compared to RJ Barrett, like RJ looks like so much bigger than Alizé. So I, I too was like completely wowed by this guy in preseason, even the start of the season, to be honest with you. But like if the Bulls are not doing the things that make Alizé really enticing from a center position where they're not necessarily forcing steals, forcing those blocks and getting out in transition where he can out hustle the opposing center then that's when the team is at risk, I suppose. And last night, I think the Bulls only had like six steals and five blocks or whatever it was off the top of my head. So they weren't necessarily getting in the passing lanes or blocking shots like like we've seen them do early in the season or even in preseason. So in that sense, like 
Alizé, I don't know, maybe he's going to be quickly replaced here by Tony Bradley, particularly with the Jazz coming up, and, and we know how huge Gobert and the Jazz are. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Um, Javante, I think, is going to get a lot of minutes. I think Derek Jones Jr. Uh, uh, maybe maybe just go to more to Caruso and you just play four guards. Who, who the hell knows? But, um, I mean, how do you think they're going to manage this? I, I like Javante a lot. I, I think in the short term, it makes a ton of sense to slide him to the three and then move Demar to the four where he's going to hurt you. Um, you know, one of the, the things about DeRozan that pops up for me is like how capably big men, like mobile big men, like blow past him. Like he's standing still, but mm, that was, yeah. that was the, that was the reality, whether he was playing the three or the four. So mm-hmm. I, I don't see a, a net negative there. Honestly, like I, I could see, and, and I don't want to sound unkind you know given Pat Williams injury but there could very well be a short-term positive bump to playing Javante Green more minutes because I think if we're being honest you know maybe there's something that Billy Donovan sees in Pat Williams this version of Pat Williams that isn't apparent to my you know non-professional basketball eye but I think it's fair to consider some of the minutes that he's playing developmental minutes you know like Patrick Williams was not a 25 to 28 minute per game player on merit alone mm-hmm. and so if if we're shifting some of those well shipping all of them out and replacing them with Javon Green, who could not be more game you know despite his shortcomings mm-hmm. shooting being the biggest one I yeah I, I think that serves the starting lineup now I, the ripple effects for the second unit where now you are having to play a Derek Jones Jr. and you are having to lean on Alize Johnson than you were before. That that becomes a little tough, and I'm not sure how that's all going to play out. Because whereas we were thin before in the front court, like we are anemic now. Yeah. So yeah, we're we're going to be mourning Pat Williams' absence from that standpoint, if if no other. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like if Alizé remains as a, as a backup center, for example, and you've got Derek Jones Jr. next to him as the backup power forward, let's call it, then those are two small, thin guys as your your backup bigs. And I mean, this this team more generally, it, uh, we're only five games into the season, but it, it's it's clearly a small sample. But the you know the trending data suggests this is going to be a very bad rebounding team, whether it's offensive rebounding, defensive rebounding. Beyond Vucevic, no one's really rebounding the ball, and I guess. You know, I've been one of the more vocal critics of Pat in that sense. So to your point, I don't think the balls are going to be hurt in the short term, particularly in the starting unit. So to, to give you some numbers, I was looking at this prior to this podcast, but in, in 63 minutes together, the starting unit basically were posting a, a 97.8 offensive rating, which is extremely, extremely bad. Now, fortunately for them, their defensive rating was superbly good, which was 88.1. So they were grading out... Uh, still very highly in that sense. So that the starting unit was functioning from a, a total complete package, but for offensively, it just wasn't working at all. And, uh, you know, to, to, to round that point home, I suppose, they've only had one uh, first quarter this season where they've been above league average in offensive rating. And that came against the Detroit Pistons uh, in the third game of the season. Every other time they've been like, you know, commiserate with like the, the 21st or 22nd 
worst offense in the league or potentially in some games even worse than that like against the Knicks they only posted a 104.2 net uh, offensive rating rather in the first quarter so they've been getting off to slow starts the offense hasn't been really working in the first quarter and I think it's unfair to blame all of that on Patrick Williams but to your point like if you throw Javante in there then maybe he can kickstart things a little bit with his energy to the point where maybe the first quarter you know, going uh, moves away from a, a quarter of weakness to maybe some strength in it. But again, to your point, like then there's uh, there's there's flow on ramifications here where maybe the the backup unit suffers some. So I, I don't know if it's too early to even to be discussing this at this point, given we're five games into the season, we haven't really seen Derek Jones Jr. thus far. Like maybe he comes in and finds himself again and looks more like the Miami Heat Derek Jones Jr. rather than the Blazers version, but. I don't know, like, is it too early to be thinking about trades and uh, fortifying the, the back line, um, or, you know, maybe even the starting front court? I mean, that was probably something that the team had to address at some point in the season anyway. But has that been expedited now, given uh, Pat's injury and, and the severity of it? So I think that when you sink three first rounders into um, DeRozan and Vucevic, you're, you're, you're staked enough in win now mode that you have to protect that investment to some degree. So mm-hmm. no, I, I wouldn't roll forward with this roster and just hope for the best. You know, you have mm-hmm. the TPE to use. You know, there's some compelling free agents out there. James Ennis is one that my buddy and yours, Ralph 07, passed my way. Um, someone who could fill in with, you know, some wing minutes. I, I don't know that he'd be able to scale up to the four and help us out there. But, you know, plug a yeah. hole for sure. Um, what I am not okay with is sinking yet another first rounder, um, Mm. to fill the pad hole. I mean, because you know, looking at the big picture, we just lost our only blue chip prospect. All apologies to to Kobe. I I don't necessarily put him in that category. Mm -hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, do it, do a, do an injury that could very well change the trajectory of his career. Yeah, and we, we've emptied a lot of the cabinet of first rounders. I, I think it would be irresponsible to dispose of yet another, you know, to go in on a team that we don't really know what it is yet. You know, like we have, we, we had a fantastic preseason, obviously, and some pretty compelling wins against bad teams. Um, you know, leading up to last night, um, but especially with Zach's injury. Uh, and the fact that you know we have a lot to figure out in the half court offensively before we can count on this being an offensively competent competent team, I, I just don't think that that kind of investment makes sense at this point. You know, closer to the deadline, if we've got something rolling, maybe revisit. Even then, I don't think I'd be that excited about it. But right now, it, 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 you you, can, you just you just can't empty um, you know the reserves, the, the future assets. To that degree at this stage yeah for sure and i mean apart from first round picks i guess their main assets would be but you know maybe combining kobe and Derek jones jr and you know the the 15 odd million dollars that they combine to be maybe you can get that up to 20 million you can get a decent player back but kobe hasn't played his value i'm assuming is pretty low right now we, we, we've just talked about djj not even playing at all this season so he hasn't registered really any minutes so he's not really going to be enticing either um and, and and you mentioned it there like Levine's thumb issue like we're not 100% sure what that means just yet like he's playing through it right now 
but he's been on record. I think Donovan's been on record as well. Like this is something they're going to have to learn to manage, assuming they can manage it at all. And there's potential for it to to get worse. They're hoping it heals whilst playing. But if he takes another knock on it or two, and and if this thing escalates some, then like you said, like diving into the asset test again, and you know trading for some sort of backup option or some starting forward option, and then you lose Levine for months with a with a thumb or a hand injury, and then. You know, would we'll be sitting here ruining that decision. So it is a bit of a tricky one for the Bulls front office at this point. I, I, I would imagine they're going to be in wait and see mode and see how this thing sort of plays out. But I, I guess it's just interesting because you know, trading for a backup or fortifying the the front court was something that they they needed to do, needed to do in season. I, I still think they need to, but uh, I don't know if the pat injury has expedited that just due to the fact that the Levine thing sort of hangs in the background, but. I don't know. Maybe maybe we can jump into the into Bulls Knicks as well because um, you mentioned it there, and, and I think this was pretty clear as well when watching this game that for whatever reason the Bulls are having a tough time finding their flow in their half court offense. And I know they got that game within one point and they could have stolen the win with a uh, had DeRozan made that final basket, but ultimately it felt like for for forty five minutes of that forty eight minute game that the Knicks were in kind of cruise control. Like they were, it just felt like they were constantly up by eight or 10 or 12 points, something like that. And it, again, it just felt like a team that had more control over their half-court offense compared to the Bulls who were seemingly working a lot harder to, to generate better looks. Like, I mean, for example, like the, the ease that Kemba Walker was walking into his three-point shots and, and Evan Fournier as well compared to what the, the some of the shots that the Bulls were generating. Yeah, the half-court offense is problematic at this point. And if they can't, create those blocks and steals like I mentioned before and get into the transition where they have been just truly elite, then it bogs down in the half court. And I have my concerns about the Bulls at the moment, but uh, are those concerns real? Do you think they'll last? Do you think this team will eventually figure out how to you know, uh, behave within the within the half court, how they can sort of make the, the Levine-Vucevic pairing all work together? Do, do you think this is just a, a timing thing or is there more, uh, is, there, is there greater root causes here that we're just not seeing at the moment? I, I, I'm willing to extend them the benefit of the doubt in terms of establishing chemistry because, you know, they do have some odd fitting pieces that I think mm-hmm. are going to take some time. Um, you know, uh, Levine has come a long, long way as a pick and roll playmaker. I, I still, I'm still not sure that I'd call it his strong suit. I mean, he definitely creates advantage with his speed, blinding mm-hmm. fast. And it seems like he and Nikola have found something. Yeah. Um, but it, it, you know, in terms of extending that to playmaking for the other three players on the floor, I, I haven't seen enough of it. Um, Lonzo, you know, I, I've been impressed with Lonzo. And prior to the Knicks game, I would have said that he was the team's MVP through four games. And oh. I, I feel him pressing in the half court in a way that I don't think is bad necessarily. You know, my mind goes back to, you know, his preseason quotes about how he's going to be a more traditional point guard. And I and I see him trying, you know, to use his very non-advanced dribble and his high hips to to, to create some penetration. And it, it doesn't work out. <laughs> it hasn't worked out um, all that well up to this point. Um, it just I, I don't think that's his game at this stage. And I don't see that changing this season, if ever. So that he's going to be limited there. Um, really, it, it feels like a lot of it is it's, it's flowing and is going to continue to flow through Vucevic. And I, I think that's good. You know, he's, he's got the passing chops and the shooting to, to, to play make from the five spot. 
I just don't know that he has the kind of like category five talent to be a, a, a top 10 or even top 15 offensive team's primary playmaking hub. Unfortunately, though, up to this point, he's been the only one who's been equal to the task outside of, you know, the odd quarter here and there from DeMar. So I don't know how to, what to make of that soup at this point. And yeah, I am a, a little bit concerned, but, you know, it's going to take time to really see whether there's a there there. And it's early days yet, so I'm not I'm not rendering any judgments quite yet. Yeah, I, I, I'm of I'm of a similar mind. I, I don't want to go too early with any takes about what the offense can or can't be, and um, I still have my concerns about what it ultimately can be. Assuming they don't necessarily fix their three point shooting from a volume point of view, and if they don't fix their bench scoring, I think that's part of the issue too. But at the same time, when in closing game situations, as we saw against the Raptors, pretty much everyone wet the bed apart from Demar, which was encouraging in the sense that we have we do now have Demar to take the ball out of Levine's hands and we've got an up, other option there who can close the game and do something of note so like that that is encouraging but at the same time to your point like I don't feel comfortable at any point when Lonzo and, and Caruso are the main pick and roll initiators I don't feel like the ball is going to get a good shot out of that you know out of those type of possessions that that is to say that Caruso and, and Lonzo can't be uh, valuable pieces within an offense I, I, I more so as offensive finishes and, and more so Lonzo in that respect but I don't really want them creating a ton of options within the within the within the offense maybe this is just an early season thing where Billy is is testing things I guess and giving them more responsibility and having DeMar and Levine work more off ball but yeah, I don't know. It's going to be an interesting situation. And I take your point around Vucevic maybe not being the top-line offensive player that's a really, really good offense he's sort of built around. And that that is certainly that is certainly true. And I guess the irony in that is like this was the best Vucevic game that we saw, like 22 points, 8 rebounds, 6 assists for Vuce. He had some truly fantastic passing against the Knicks. And uh, there was one uh, pass that he had uh, to, to Caruso on the weak side corner where he made it just like... Couple, a couple bounces from one side of the court, uh, threw a bullet into the corner to, to Caruso, who spotted up and hit a three. And there was a couple other players where he was just like playing high, within the high post, and he was just finding players cutting all over the place. So I feel confident in that Vucevic can be part of it. But to your point, like the hub, the main piece, the one that drives the offense, which it kind of feels like he is at this point because he's the, the central piece, the constant within the offense, then... Yeah, I, I think that is somewhat concerning. But more than that, I'm actually concerned with the with the with the bench and the lack of scoring and and shooting within the bench. And again, against the Knicks, I guess where this was quite stark as well. Like when the the Knicks second unit rolled in, and you got Rose, you got Alec Burks, you got uh, Emmanuel Quickly, for example, three guys who can do stuff off the bounce compared to the Bulls second unit, which is focused entirely around DeRozan, where you've got Caruso, Alize Johnson, and Javante Green coming in with Troy Brown Jr. Like to me again, like at that point, it was a, it was it was a welcome reminder against the Knicks here. Who the Knicks are going to be a good team, but they're they're far from an elite team. But it was a welcome reminder that this bench unit has has its flaws. If it's not getting out into passing lanes and, and creating buckets in transition, then it has the uh, I guess the the inability to create in the way like the Knicks did, where you can just give the ball to Derrick Rose, for example, or an Alec Burks who can do stuff off pick and roll, can do stuff off the bounce. Whereas the Bulls second unit right now is let DeMar cook and everyone around him just, just bring, bring defense and, and try to score by playing good defense. That That's the feel that I get at the moment anyway. 
it, it, it's funny. I, you know, about let's say three weeks, four weeks ago, probably not quite as long when we're rolling in preseason. I mean, as well as things are going, I, you know, I had a thought creeping in the back of my mind that, wow, this is a really important developmental year for Kobe White. And there mm. really isn't a role for him on this team. You know, like we're, we're just, everything seems to be clicking in place and we're doing it well without him. What are we going to do? Relegate him to a 10, 15, you know, occasional, occasional 20 minute game role. Uh, and now fast forward to the future where, like you said, we're just not getting that scoring pop off the bench. Um, yeah. We're not shooting threes, uh, you know, at, at any real clip. Mm-hmm. This is a tailor-made situation for a Kobe White that's ready. And who knows if he'll be ready coming off the shoulder and missing training camp to come in and actually do something. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to see it, you know, because I, I think the pieces complement him really, really well. Um, at the same time, that's an awful lot to put on a guy who typically doesn't even get rolling until February, <laughs> March in some cases. Uh, so it'll, I'm curious to see whether he can come out of the, come out of the gates and make a contribution because it's it's pretty obvious that we need a a Kobe White type. Yeah, for sure. And like I, I stopped myself yesterday. Maybe I might be wrong here. I, I feel like I didn't quote about Kobe White and and the need for him, but I feel like every other game I've made that point on Twitter. Like I'm just sitting there post game, or even when I'm watching the second unit go around, I'm like, man, we could really use Kobe White and. Um, you know, from a stream of consciousness, consciousness, I, t- I typically tweet that out whenever I, I feel like the, this team needs Kobe, but there's only so many times you can say it. And given that he's probably still a month away, I, I don't want to keep harping on about it, but you make a salient point there. Like he will help from a three point shooting point of view. He will help from a scoring point of view. And, and now that I think about it, I did tweet it. I did make a tweet post the next game that I was referencing the, 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 the importance of Kobe White. But I, I do feel like that, that Bulls maybe beat this Knicks team had they had Kobe White, which is kind of encouraging given that this is a team still trying to work itself out and to be in a position to beat the Knicks. Now, I guess it did involve the Knicks just choking away a, a 13 point lead there pretty quickly. But nonetheless, you know, it, it, I guess that's the encouraging thing that this team is still trying to find itself, still trying to work itself out. But nonetheless, they're four and one now. The Knicks were their first real test. They didn't necessarily pass that test, but they'll they'll right there in the they'll right there competing, I suppose. And I, I'm kind of I'm kind of high on the Knicks to be honest with you. I think they bat ten deep. I think they they go pretty deep in that sense, and, and I think they're a, a sneaky chance to be a four or five seed again. But yeah, like it was just stark as well. I guess like. Watching Troy Brown Jr., for example, or like his minutes or Io's minutes, for example, where the Knicks have a Derek Rose or an Alec Burks or something like that. If you could throw in Kobe in there and if, and if Kobe could do his best Derek Rose impersonation or in terms of the Derek Rose that's playing for the Knicks right now, like that would that would balance out that second unit. It would help the Bulls from a three-point shooting point of view. At the moment, the Bulls are dead last in the league in terms of three-point rate, which is a three-point attempt rate, which is which is not good at all. And coming into yesterday's game, the Knicks were actually first in the league. Nearly half of their offense was generated from the three-point line. And, and why that's relevant is the, the Bulls' next game is against the Utah Jazz, who in a lot of ways are very similar to the Knicks. Like half of their offense is generated from the three-point line. They're a huge team. They offensive rebound just at a crazy rate. They're a fantastic defensive team, but I think they're first in offensive rating in the NBA at the moment. So in, in, a, in a strange way, we're going to get a, a replica uh, game here um, for the Bulls against the Jazz, similarly to the Knicks, but maybe a more tuned-up version than the Knicks and the Jazz. So... 
I, I don't know. Do you, do you think the Bulls take any of their learnings in this game against the Knicks and carry it over to the Jazz? Is that even possible given the news with Pat? And obviously they're going to be trying to find their way now without Pat. And I don't know, the Jazz look pretty damn formidable at the moment. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that game, but I, I'm personally kind of scared at the moment. <laughs> but uh, Maybe I shouldn't be, but uh, the Jazz... Uh, look, I don't know if I would pick the Jazz to win the title, but in terms of a, a direct matchup with the Bulls and you know what the Bulls sort of lack and what the Jazz are very good at, I, I am very scared about uh, the game this evening. Oh yeah, no, that, you, you should be scared. I, I'm scared. <laughs> like yeah. it's just it, like you said. I, and did I read correctly that Rudy Gobert is out? tomorrow night maybe oh I, really yeah well, that makes me less it, scared that, that makes me less scared that, that would be great but it, i mean it doesn't address the issue you know of the, the like the gross disparity of three-point shooting yeah like if we get we if we're playing utah and we're trading threes for twos i mean we can just call it a game pretty quickly there because they're just so adept in that department and we're just not putting up the volume that we need to and oddly enough you know i Again, you know, Javante Green is no three-point shooter. Like we, we we know that. However, Patrick Williams' volume was just so anemic, despite the yeah. fact that he has such an obvious shooting touch. I mean, it drives me crazy to watch him pass <laughs> up these open shots. I mean, it's every Bulls fan has talked about that in the last couple of days, so I won't harp on that. But you know, yeah. to to move him to not have him in 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 the rotation and potentially replace it with you know, a couple of players that have a little bit more trigger happiness going for them. I mean, that, that could help in that department, but otherwise, I, I don't know. I'm not, no, it, it's, it's hard to see how, uh, you know, the, this matchup works in our favor, even if Gobert is not on the floor. Um, you know, one thing that I do hope that we take away from the Knicks game is it, it, I, I do think we need to see more of Tony Bradley. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was excited as anyone else, you know, through preseason, the first few games of the season around this super small, super switchable lineup, you mm-hmm. know, the hands team that's generating deflections and turnovers. But what was so obvious last night is that the gap between what we had been trotting out there and the merely competent interior defense and rebounding that Tony brought Bradley brought in his minutes, I, I we need it. You know, we can't afford it to not have it against the larger team. So I do, I thought he was a, a fine backup option going into the season. And in the preseason, it looked like we found something in Alizé. And I was totally fine rolling with that, um, you know, when he was bringing energy. But now that that seems to have petered out and we are suffering on the boards against, uh, you know, bigger teams, I, I think rolling back to a more traditional rotation um, among the big men might make sense. Yeah, so t- t- to your point, like the Jazz are second in offensive rating at the at the moment. They're also second in defensive rating. They're first in net rating. They're first in three point attempt rate. But uh, importantly, they are third in uh, offensive rebounding per- uh, percentage. And the Bulls are essentially bottom bottom five, bottom six in defensive rebounding percentage. So the the Bulls need to end defensive possessions. Like the, it's fair enough. I mean, playing good defense is going to be tough against the against the Jazz regardless because they're just a very good offensive team. Like I said, second in the league and they get up so many threes and you made the note there that trading threes for twos, you know, mathematically is never really favorable and particularly when the Jazz are first and the, the Bulls are 30th in terms of percentage of offense, uh, you know, derived from three-point attempts. So from that perspective, the Bulls are playing at a loss and if they can't generate free throws, if they can't generate the steals that 
you know, fl- lead into their their transition game, then they're going to have to play good defense, and they're going to need go, they're going to need uh, to end possessions as soon as the the first shot goes up because they're they're just a third in the league in offensive rebounding percentage. So to that point. I don't know if you can play Alizé Johnson against a team like the Jazz or those really small small units against a team like the Jazz because they're huge and they can get every rebound, they can extend possessions, and if they grab an offensive rebound and that just leads to them furthering their three point rate because they can you know grab an offensive rebound and, and then fire up another three point attempt, like for example, like that's problematic and that's really going to test the Bulls' defense. Now, to the Bulls' credit, they've been really good defensively. They're fourth in defensive ratings thus far this season. Unfortunately, the offensive rating sort of is. Not where I, well, not where I hoped, and maybe that was that. Maybe that's on me in terms of expectations. They're twelfth in offensive rating, twelfth in e field goal percentage, and the, like I said, the Jazz are second in defensive rating. So this is going to be a real test for the Bulls, um, particularly after having a, a tough game against the Knicks, and now without Patrick Williams, it, it is a bit of a, a tall task. But this is the kind of test that this team is going to be facing over the next sort of. 12, 15, 20 odd games because whilst the Jazz are coming into the to the United Center on Saturday night, it doesn't necessarily get a lot easier from there. Like the next run of games are against the Celtics. They got a couple against the 76ers. They got the Nets in there. Uh, they got the Dallas Mavericks as well before they head out west and face uh, the Warriors, Clippers, Lakers, Blazers, and Nuggets on the road before coming home again to then play the Knicks. So there's a lot of tough games coming up for the Bulls. This I don't want to say this stretch of games is going to define their season because it was so early into the season. Who knows what the team will look like in game 80 of the season versus game 20. And, you know, that's that's a fair statement for this team, but more generally as well across the league. Who the hell knows how things change? But what this, why this is important is we've talked about this team trying to find themselves within the half court, trying to find an identity offensively, but trying to do that whilst coming up against some of the league's best competition. Like that, that's the trick here. So it's going to be an interesting test case, but maybe they surprise us. Maybe they're really competitive against the Jazz. I, I don't, I don't know what to make against the teams like the Celtics and the 76ers. Like whereas previously I was maybe a little bit more fearful of them. I don't know if I am at the moment, given the Simmons thing and the Celtics just don't have a lot of play creation off the bounce. So maybe there's maybe there is an opportunity there to to get a couple wins there. But and similarly with the Nets, like James Harden doesn't look as formidable as he once did. Obviously, Kyrie is still researching, I suppose. So um, there's maybe this tough schedule has a chance, or so there's some scope here for this tough schedule to look a little bit easier. And like again, as as I forecast ahead, the Clippers. You know they're they're a tough and, and and scrappy type team, but they're losing to the Cavaliers as as we're as we're uh, uh, they lost to the Cavaliers rather uh, yesterday. The Lakers lost to OKC the other day, so I don't know. Maybe this tough schedule that I'm just talking myself into right now as we're as we're recording, Casey. Like maybe this is maybe there's a chance here that this isn't as so bad as what I I initially thought it would be. I, I mean, there's something to be said for catching these teams early. Yeah. Where no, no team is who they are, who they will be in another couple of months, and that noise I think can only help us when we're going against teams that on paper are simply better. Um, I, I, I think I still think that this run of two to three weeks, it's like for some pretty draconian schedule making, and I don't know how that wasn't flagged by the league office at some point. You know that someone <laughs> didn't sit down and look at you know, the slate through November and, and decide that and not decide that something should have been shuffled around because this is, I mean, this is as bad as I've seen it, you know, since I started paying attention to the bull schedule and that this is going back 20, 30 odd years at this point. So I, I don't know. I, 
if we can if we can somehow land in the 400 to 500 range and even hearing myself say that aloud it sounds a little lofty i think we'll have done our job especially you know given the four game cushion that we gave ourselves in the beginning of the season and uh Hopefully we learned some things about the pecking order. Um, one thing that worried me about the Knicks game is it really seemed to be a moment in the third quarter where we just could not penetrate that eight to 12 point yeah. lead that you know the mm-hmm. Knicks had maintained like consistently going back to the first quarter where everyone was just kind of standing around looking at each other and no one was picking up the energy. Um, that was worrying to me this early in the season where you know, we should be full of nothing but, you know, vim and vigor, um, fresh legs and all of that. So uh, I, 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 I'm curious, if nothing else, to see how all that shakes out. You know, is, is this going to be a consistent, you know, are we going to be looking at DeMar DeRozan pretty consistently in those spots where nothing's going in the half court and we just need someone to make to, to make stuff happen, um, you know, in ISO? Is Levine going to go? on a tear again you know I've, I've been a little bit frustrated with his shot selection these last couple of games he seems to yeah. progress a little bit and, and uh-huh. you know based on his post-game quotes he seems to know it but i don't know it, it, it's with him in particular i i, I want to see how he evolves going against long athletic defensive teams which you know, maybe I'm imagining this, but it it, it, it seemed it seems like it's been its his Achilles heel going back a couple of seasons now. You know, like the Phillies of the world, Boston to a to a lesser extent. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just guys who can throw multiple long bodies at him um, and make him uncomfortable. You know, I, I I hope that the Demar effect, you know, looms big here. You know, just figuring out how to find your spot on the floor and just sink into it and take yours regardless of what what the defense are throwing at you i, I feel like that's that's going to be crucial for levine if we're going to make it out of this storm yeah i, I guess the irony of all that is I, it, it feels like levine and derozan are completely on the same page in terms of them figuring themselves out and how to play to the get play together whereas like post game last yesterday after the next game where derozan was the one that ultimately took the final shot and it, I, this is my fault we should probably reference this earlier in the podcast but there was so much conversation about that final shot, at least post game, about you know DeRozan shouldn't have looked off Levine. He should have given Levine the ball to to close the game and give him the opportunity to win the game. And and there's obviously merit in that conversation, but it, it is going to be a bit of an interesting push pull as to who takes what shot. Now I referenced the Raptors game earlier, and Zach was doing some really dumb stuff in that game. Uh, maybe the thumb was playing an issue like that was when he hurt that his thumb in that game I believe so maybe that was part of the uh, the situation as to maybe he couldn't create off the bounce with his left hand or in, in the way that he wanted to I, I don't know maybe the, I mean the Raptors are going to be a very good defensive team so you, you mentioned the fact that coming up against long athletic teams have the ability to maybe to hamper uh, Zach some well the Raptors are exactly that but it kind of felt like in that situation, or at least in that game, like that was DeRozan's fourth quarter. He was the one owning those possessions, and rightly so. And in the, against the Knicks, he got the final shot. So for me, I was comfortable with it. And uh, we'll see how that, again, transpires throughout the, the rest of the season and, and who gets those shots moving forward. I'm assuming it'll be a blended approach, but maybe one of them emerges as the, as the key primary guy. But it was DeMar. I thought it was a perfectly fine play call. I thought it was 
I was I was happy with DeRozan taking the last shot. I know a lot of the conversation was uh, you know about DeRozan Levine, but my issue with that play call was like, why is Vucevic in on the strong side corner with DeRozan and Levine? Like you're just sending extra help there to to DeRozan's way. Like that was my main issue with it. But I don't know what were your thoughts on that final play. Did you have an issue with DeMar taking the shot over Levine? Uh, what would you no. have done differently? All that sort of stuff. No, not at all. I mean, I, I thought that the initial misdirection actually worked reasonably well. But, you know, to yeah. your point, that second man pops up in DeRozan's face because Nikola brought him there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in terms of passing it back to, to Zach, I, I think that's a needlessly complicated wrinkle. You know, if, if that play had, you know, worked out that the way the way that it should have. The thing that I struggled with it, um, and to be clear, I have no problem with DeRozan taking that shot last night or, you know, future nights, any night, really. I mean, that that should be a big part of his role with this with this team. I'm not sure what he saw in the closing seconds, because he definitely hesitated on letting that jump shot go. You know, I, I if I'm piecing it together you know, from memory, it seemed that he was hoping that the defenders would bite initially on that initial pump fake. And maybe he goes to draw the foul. I I hope that's not the case, because I think that's a pretty bad instinct in that spot, because it seems refs are loath to award that call in the closing seconds of a game. Um, I just I just wish that he'd let the shot go, you know, instead of hesitating. I, I know he said something in post game about how he wasn't expecting um, you know, to get that good of a look. I don't quite understand that being that there were two guys, you know, standing right <laughs> there. It seemed yeah. like, you know, he had all the motivation in the world or he should have had all the motivation in the world to let that thing go, um, as, as quickly as possible. But, um, yeah, the, the, the outcome was disappointing for sure. But, you know, from a coaching standpoint, I thought the process was just fine. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to get uh, you know, with under five seconds left in in, in the game, to get your two primary score scorers involved in a two man action where they were effectively on an island with their two direct defenders, like that's a pretty good outcome. Now, to your point, the result wasn't ideal. Yeah, it was an air ball, right? I'm I'm pretty sure in, in, yeah, in saying was. that or it didn't get anywhere close to it. But um, I think, and you noted it there, like where Demar did, did himself in was he probably went too early, and he probably didn't need to to go to that pump fake like. That kind of ruined his momentum in that in that sense. It allowed it allowed RJ Barrett to get back in the play or stay in the play. And, and to RJ's credit, like he didn't necessarily bite for the fake. He didn't go up and uh, get uh, get get wooed by the fake, I suppose, and fouling that situation. And in, in doing in doing the fake, I suppose as well, it just allowed Mitchell Robertson that extra split second to maybe enter the play. And I don't know, maybe maybe Demar went into the pump fake because he saw Vooch and he saw. Uh, Mitchell Robertson sort of fading into that strong side corner to where DeRozan was dribbling the ball. Maybe that was part of it. I don't know. But yeah, look, I think from a general play call point of view, I'm okay with it. And But realistically, like the Bulls shouldn't have been in that situation anyway. If the Knicks just take care of business, we're not talking about a situation where, you know, who's the primary guy in that situation where we're instead talking about a 10 or 12 point loss where the, the tenor of this conversation is probably a lot, a lot uh, different. So they're kind of fortunate to be in that situation, to be frank. But um, hopefully there's uh, many more situations going forward where we are in we are in potential game-winning situations where the balls have the uh, the ability to put it in one of these guys' hands to make a decision to make a play and 
Uh, we should all consider ourselves fortunate if that's the case, because in previous years, it's just been the Zach Levine show. We haven't had to even question, <laughs> should it be Levine? Should it be DeRozan? Should it be Vucevic? Should it be someone else? Like we, we They're never thoughts that are entertained or entered our mind previously, whereas uh, we do have the ability now to, to ponder these things. Now, um, Casey, I mentioned at the top that it would have been ideal to have got a win against the Knicks. I mean, anytime that you beat the Knicks is always is always good. But the fact that it was Joakim Noah Knight would have made it that extra little bit sweeter. And with all those former balls in the building, be it on the court with the Knicks or you know those in the in the suites there sitting up with Joakim, it just would have made the it would have made that night a little bit sweeter. But maybe we can close and just pick up the spirits of this podcast by uh, th- <laughs> recalling with uh, um, Joakim Noah with a bit of nostalgia here. I mean, we started the podcast ruining an injury, but maybe we can leave thinking about the good years, let's say, with Joakim Noah and, and what he meant with the franchise. I, I don't know how you know the emotions are stirred in you watching that game, but uh, look, I, I'm sure I'm not alone in saying this, but like, no, uh, Joakim is... If he's not my favorite bull of all time, he's certainly top three. Um, one of the most beloved bulls of all time. And just just getting that extended uh, nostalgic feeling, I suppose, with all those former bulls, all the all the production that went into the game. I thought the bulls sort of put on a really good show for Joe Kim in that sense. And the fact that he's coming back as an ambassador to the team is, uh, is actually really nice to see. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of bittersweet in the sense that we know the Patrick injury, the bulls lost, but ultimately we got to see Joe Kim Noah again and... Uh, the respect and love that he sort of has amongst, you know, Bulls Nation is, uh, it, it, you could feel it. I mean, I could feel it across the the other side of the country, I suppose. So uh, maybe we can close with just some Joakim Noah thoughts. Yeah, I mean, Joakim's my favorite player since the, the dynasty years, for sure. I, yeah. I, I've, I've, I remember the first time uh, I saw him in person, it was actually in Minneapolis uh, during the, the rookie draft combine. Um, you know, the year that he was drafted, what would that have been? I think, I guess, yeah, I think so. And I just shouted, Joe, he turned around and waved, you know, completely (laughs) silly thing for me to do. (laughs) Like, it's just, you gain nothing from, you know, harassing people like that in public, but I I enjoyed it all the same. Uh, (laughs) And he's, I don't know, he's just always had it, you know, like even when he was a a rookie and, and, and raw really couldn't do much aside from rebound and challenge shots and pass a little bit. Like you could just tell that he was unafraid of the moment. And then, you know, three, four years down the line, you know, it, it seems like he's creating memory after memory, you know, like I, I the steal in the Boston series is mm. easily my favorite play, you know, the yeah. last 20 years. I mean, that just, Getting having the nose for the ball and then having the confidence to race it down to the other end and then beating a trailing Paul Pierce that was amazing. And then you've got the Brooklyn series uh, a couple seasons later, um, where he and Nate Robinson pretty much carried them against a much, much, much more talented team, which was remarkable. I mean, I'm really, really happy to have him back in the fold and. You know, especially considering, you know, who the Bulls' previous ambassador was, uh, Scotty Pippen, who doesn't even like the franchise, I, I don't think, and, and has it for a very long time and, and, and never made any bones about it. I mean, to have a guy like Joe Kim, you know, in the fold who loved being a Bull, loved living in Chicago, and is just a genuinely cool cat, too, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Having someone like that, you know, 
I don't know if they'd go so far as to actually include them in recruitment pitches, but just in that that informal network of current and retired NBA players. Joe Game Noah's a, a nice guy to have on your side. And I think the fact that, you know, they embraced him with that presentation the other night and made him an ambassador and, you know, it's really, really made an effort to build that relationship and, and communicate that it's important to them going forward. I, I think that's a real credit to this front office. And from a strictly self-interested standpoint, I think it's something that could pay dividends too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I, I don't really want to give credit to the Reinsdorfs because I, I just never really <laughs> want to give credit to the Reinsdorfs, but I suppose they deserve some for bringing him back in the fold, I suppose. But having said that, I mean, when uh, when he left for the Knicks, Jerry did say some pretty shitty things. So maybe I don't have to give him any credit at all. But nonetheless, yeah, it was it was great to see joking back because for all the reasons you know he's just a, a completely completely beloved figure I, I i have never met a bulls fan who hasn't loved joking no. Uh, no you know Derek rose has had his detractors jimmy has had his uh, detractors uh but you know every other player that's come before him kirk heinrich as well i mean there's there's people that absolutely love kirk but there's some that don't necessarily love Kirk. Similarly with Lowell Deng, like there's some that just completely reveal Lowell and some that expected a little bit more. Nonetheless, they're still legends in my mind, but uh, Joe Keem seemingly has the 100% approval rating. And I think it's completely justified in that sense. And yeah, to have him back was was awesome to see him back, I suppose. And um, he seemingly is in a good place and all those sorts of things. And, and all those former balls, some of those that I just referenced there being in the building, uh, beating in, in Knicks jerseys or in street clothes. Like it was just awesome to see so many of these guys that I grew up watching, I suppose, uh, which is kind of odd now given that a lot of these guys came into the franchise 15, 20 years ago, some of them. But uh, yeah, time goes quickly, I suppose. Uh, I mean, Joe Kim's not old. And he's, he's still young enough to be playing out there, which I guess is the irony. Like this t- this Bulls team right now could really use someone like Joe Kim, even in a backup role. But um it is what it is, but uh, yeah, it, it's fantastic to see him back, and and hopefully he's more visible. Like he's an an ambassador. We we occasionally see Tony Kukic around in, at games. Maybe we'll see Joe Kim in, in that sense as well. But um, something tells me he's he'll be uh, hopping around the globe and still being his uh, ultra cool self, bouncing around the place and doing a whole whole uh, whole raft of things. But nonetheless, to have him connected with the Bulls again is is awesome. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I. I, I... I want Joakim as an ambassador, but if it meant clipping his wings, no, yeah. they, they they can keep it. I want I want a a young and free Joakim Noah out there, roaming the yeah. globe. Yeah, yeah. So, some, something tells me that that's not possible to clip <laughs> his wings. So uh, <laughs> I don't think we have to worry about that. But yeah, it, it was awesome to see him back. Unfortunately, the Bulls couldn't win the game, but nonetheless, uh, I guess that's uh, like I said, bittersweet moment. Uh, the sweetness there being Joakim Noah. But uh, look, I'll let you go, mate. We'll end the podcast here, Casey. I appreciate you jumping on to uh, to join me on this episode of Bulls HQ. Uh, we we made it. We we weren't necessarily sure we we're going to be able to get this episode out due to sure. a couple of issues that have uh, presented my way. But nonetheless, we got there. Hopefully, hopefully my internet's still working. But uh, nonetheless, mate, I appreciate you jumping on and talking balls with me. This is a lot of fun. Before you get away, um, if you feel so inclined, tell people where they can follow you online yeah uh you know you can find me on twitter at black sitcom dad or you can just google casey scott that's where i'm where i engage most around bulls the bulls and uh really anything so yeah get at me i love your 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 profile handle so much uh, because it can mean so many different things like 
just more generally it's just, it's just a fun thing but given your your background in terms of what you do for for a living i suppose and, and your writing like it, there's a connection there as well so um yeah i love your handle and obviously obviously love following you as well so i appreciate your bulls takes on twitter but uh we've been connected for a long time now so um yeah it, it is cool to to get you on here to have a chat so um please go follow kc on twitter whilst you're out there doing so you can follow me too as well at mk hoops you can follow the podcast as well at bulls hq pod if you want to be part of the bulls hq discord uh, and be part of the conversation as this season progresses through you can do so by either shooting me a dm on twitter for an invite or feel free to grab that invite from the description notes of this episode if you want to drop me an email you can do so at bullshqpod at gmail.com as always rate subscribe review those five stars on itunes always help so um appreciate you doing so but uh yeah look that brings us to the conclusion of this of this podcast bulls jazz coming up very soon hopefully i'm less scared about it in a few hours time and the bulls prove me wrong but we'll, we shall see but nonetheless i uh, appreciate everyone for tuning in it's been a fun first five games of the se- of this Bulls season maybe today wasn't the best of days with the patrick williams injury but nonetheless Thank you for joining me on this episode of Bulls HQ. We'll be back later on in the week to uh, to wrap up Bulls basketball. In the interim as well, just as a bit of a plug, I'm also doing another podcast with Doug Tonus and C. Red Fred. We're over on the Bulls beat now. If you want to catch me on another Bulls podcast, it's probably the, the 17th million podcast out there that exists from a Bulls point of view. But nonetheless, Fred, Fred Doug, and I are going to be recording weekly. Um, if you're not already... Find Bulls Beat, Chicago Bulls Beat, wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, wherever it may be, we're up in there. So look out for that as well. But uh, that has been all for Bulls HQ. Appreciate everyone tuning in. So until next time, this has been Bulls HQ. Speak soon, Bulls fans. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.